Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takesta, and my co-host this evening is Ms. Jesse Walensky. How are you, Jesse? I'm doing well. I'm doing really well. How are you doing, Dr. Bill? Oh, I'm really, really eager to hear all of this information from Kristen. So would you introduce Kristen to our audience, Jesse? Yes, I would love to. I'm very, very excited um, to be co-hosting this episode for the first time, especially because after reading Kristen's story, I just can't wait to talk with her. Um, tonight we have Kristen Smedley joining us. And she is a mom who had both of her sons legally uh, diagnosed as legally blind as infants, which, as you can imagine, definitely turned her world upside down. Um, but she learned how to become a strong advocate for her sons, and she's done some amazing things. Um, in 2011, Kristen launched a, mis a mission to fund research and resources for children living with rare diseases that her sons have. And in less than eight years, the curing retinal Blindness Foundation has raised over a million dollars and achieved the first legislation in U.S. history to be submitted in Braille, which is absolutely amazing. And this legislation um, advocates for better resources for the blind and visually impaired for Americans. Um, and besides that, she's done a lot of amazing things, has a book out, has done TED Talks, has raised awareness and support and money for retinal diseases um, for several years, and I'm just so excited that she's here. Welcome, Kristen. Uh, thanks so much, Jesse. Thanks so much, Bill, and everybody else for having me. I'm excited to, to talk with you guys tonight. Boy, your, your background is, is really, really amazing, and to raise that type of money and to be on the TED, that's really very impressive. Um, can you tell us a little bit more just about your background? Where did you grow up and uh, your family and et cetera, so that we, we know a little more about you? Yeah, you know, um, it's, it's always surprising to me to hear my bio also. <laughs> 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 because I gotta tell you, I, um, you know, honestly, the, I think the, the people that are always the, the most impressed and the most proud every time that's read is uh, my parents because I grew up, I was one of those, um, I guess I was a little bit of a, a bizarre kid that I knew from the time I was five years old that I would be a teacher, an elementary school teacher. I just knew it. And my poor brothers, I mean, I have four brothers. We grew up in the Philly area. I'm a Philly girl through and through <laughs> DNA and my bones. So if I talk too fast, you'll have to flag me to slow down. I get excited. But um, I have four brothers and I used to sit them down. And God bless them, they would sit there and I would teach them anything I wanted to. I would use my old papers as handouts. I mean, I planned everything to be a teacher. I couldn't wait. And and I um I just I, I just knew it in my bones that's what I was gonna do. And and then to hear my my bio now um is just extraordinary that you know, when I had to walk away from teaching, which we can get into later, um I thought that that was a dream that, that God shut the door on. Um, and it turns out now I get to teach well outside of a classroom, you know, people all over the world. I get to teach them about the possibilities that, that there are in life, no matter what walls uh, seem to be in front of you and, and resilience and thriving just my, my dream of teaching did come to fruition, but it just looks a heck of a lot different than I planned. 
<laughs> That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. first, um, the I was curious about, um, like, I know obviously your son is what led you down the road into raising awareness and money for the visually impaired community. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about what that was like for you, you know, how in the very beginning when your sons are getting this diagnosis, because um, I do believe it happened at separate times, your sons are different ages? Yeah, yeah, they're three and a half years apart. So yeah, what was I, that like for you? Well, I, I have to say, um, you know, I, I've i said that, which I can't believe now, looking at my life and, and you know, being on uh, with yet another group of, of blind and visually impaired people that I get to chat with tonight, when my son, Michael, was diagnosed 20 years ago with the rare blindness of Labor's congenital amaurosis, he was the first blind person I had ever met in my life, wow. you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and then the second, you know, very close after that was, was my son, Mitchell, three years later, and I had only met um, some parents of, of blind children in between. So if, if you, um, if you know you know, for me planning my whole life to be a teacher, I'm sure that you can assume that I obviously had some very good success in school to want to stay there for the rest of my life and teach, right? I am a kind the kind of person that, you know, sets goals, makes a plan and goes according to the plan, follows the rules, accomplishes the goal, move on to the next one. And blindness was not in the plan at all. Mm. Um, so I, and I also, you know, if, you, if you've had kids or know people that have, have had kids and have gone through those nine months of waiting for that incredible miracle to enter the world, I, your hopes and dreams for that child grow, right? And it was like, as my belly was growing, those dreams for him got bigger and bigger. And I had a wonderful life. And I, you know, I wanted him to have the next level wonderful, you know, and, and I envisioned uh, a football quarterback and I'm, I'm a we're a big Philly sports fans you know and I'm thinking oh man will he someday play for the Phillies or the Eagles and then <laughs> wow. you know at, at four months old to hear your son is blind you know one of my very first questions was will he play baseball and mm-hmm. for me now 20 years later that sounds absurd but for me 20 years ago a brand new mom you know, with, with my hopes and dreams all ahead for him. And, and all I could think about was, is he going to play baseball? Is he going to be the valedictorian? Is he going to walk the graduation line with the cap and gown, you know, in college? And, and all the answers were pointing to no. And, you know, I, I'm very open now. I was a little embarrassed about it for a while. Um, but I'm open now to say that when that doctor said your son is blind, there would be no baseball. There will be no driving. And he said, Kristen, your dreams are over. And not only did my dreams crash, but I crashed to the floor. Um, I know now that it's because I had absolutely no education, no point of reference, no story to point to of possibility of hope of you know, okay, this is a challenge I didn't expect, but look at all these people that have succeeded without sight. That didn't exist 20 years ago. Facebook didn't exist. The internet barely existed 20 years ago. So I give myself a a lot of grace now that, you know, 20 years ago, Kristen didn't have all that information, which, 
you mentioned some of the things that I've accomplished since then. That's why I do the work I do, because I do not want any other mom sitting in a little exam room where a doctor says there's no hope for your child. Um, because as you all know, I mean, the possibilities are endless for somebody without sight. They just, you know, I don't know if you've ever met Kathy Nimmer, the um, blind, she happens to be blind and she was teacher of the year in her state and a top one in the country a few years ago. And her, her thing I always come back to is your child, your blind child will still get to the top of their mountain, but the path is just going to look different. But I didn't know that back then. So it was a very dark and devastating time for a very young um, uh, naive and uneducated mom in this field. Wow. Oh, man. And I think you, you really bring up a great point about you being in that exam room and getting this news and you not knowing where to go through next. You know what I mean? I, sometimes doctors cannot have the best bedside manner when delivering news yeah. like this. That's why I think it's so important to be able to get resources in the doctor's office. He could hand you a pamphlet of a support group of other people going through this, you know, because like, as you said, you just felt like my world just ended, you know, How, yeah. what do I do next? Yeah. Wow. What, um, what was, like, when you brought him in, was this just like a routine checkup or like, were you noticing certain signs? So that's a great question. And it points a lot to um, my perspective and why I was eventually able to start making baby steps to, um, handle this a little better. When Michael was three months, three and a half months old, I went back to work. I wasn't working as a teacher um, per se, because I had had this job in the inner cities of Kansas City that just wiped me out for a while. So I went into um, the Department of Education out in Chicago, where Michael was born. I had this phenomenal job where I was training teachers to use the internet. How funny is that? It had just come on the scene and we had to figure out how to use it. So um, <laughs> My, my point to that is he went to a friend of mine in the neighborhood who was, look, I was a first time mom. I'm like, whoever's going to watch my child for more than five minutes has to be a registered nurse. They need to know CPR. You know, I was like a crazy person. And I had a neighbor that was all of those things. And she agreed to watch him for a few hours a day. And I said to her one day after a couple of weeks, um, I said, you know, do you notice that his eyes are, are swirling when he lays on his back? And she said, I did notice that. And I'm like, I've never seen anything like that before. But I was like studying that what to expect the first year book, you know, like, I'm like, it didn't say anything about that in the book. I don't know what that is. And she said, well, it's not normal. So why don't you just see what the pediatrician says? And then I went to the pediatrician and they said, they were looking at him and they said, um, how, how did you drive here? And I said, yeah. And they said, how far is your hospital? I had to, they got me to the emergency room to have an MRI, an immediate MRI, because they thought it was a brain tumor that was pressing when Michael would lay his head back. Um, it would take a week for every test to come back. And I found out later that they were assembling a cancer team because they assumed cancer because all of the eye tests came back negative, that there was nothing wrong with his eyes. Um, so, you know, once they said, oh, it's not a brain tumor and it's not cancer, but he's blind, um, you know, there was that element of, okay, all my hopes and dreams are gone, but he's alive and he's, you know, he's not going anywhere. It's just, you know, this devastating path ahead, but he's here. So I did, you know, sometimes I say that's, that was the most hopeless time, but there was, and I always feel like, you know, that's 
God holds my hand when I don't even know he's holding my hand. Sometimes he knocks me upside the head because I really need to learn something, but he was holding my hand at that moment um, because there was that little glimmer of, okay, it's not, you know, it's not life or death. It's just quality of life at this point. Um, but yeah, there was, it turns out that it was nystagmus that, that he had because his eyes weren't, when they couldn't focus on something, they were just swirling. Um, and I, I'm, I'm incredible as much as nystagmus scared me years ago, I'm, I'm incredibly blessed and grateful that he had the nystagmus to, to alert us that he was, he did not have the vision that we thought he had. Wow. Now, did, did the doctor actually refer you to an agency that specialized in children with low vision or blindness? No. And, and, um, you know, he had said, good luck. And I was one of those people that <laughs> he asked me to pick myself up and get myself together because he had other patients to see. And I luckily, you know, I guess being a, a bit of a Philly girl, tomboy, I wasn't necessarily taking no for an answer. And I said, you can't send me out of here with nothing, you know? Oh, and he said, you. Uh, for you. and he didn't hand me any resources, but he did say, look, um, there's nothing anybody can do. However, if you're really going to, you know, um, be like that, there's one doctor in the world that knows anything about, you know, maybe the slightest bit about LCA. There's one person and it was Dr. Irene Malmany. And remember, I was living in Chicago and he said she's at um, Johns Hopkins at the time she was there. And maybe she can tell you something about this disease. And we flew to Johns Hopkins and um, she saw us immediately. And it turns out, I wrote, write about her in my book because Irene Malmany connected me to a family um, called the Brints who had started a little patient uh, family group for kids with LCA. And that started me on my, on my slow climb to my acceptance and finding tools and resources for my kids. But had he not told me about Irene Malmany and had she not handed me to the Brints and that little organization, I, I, I don't even want to think about where I would be. Um, so yeah, it, and, and interestingly enough, many years later, when I started the organization that you mentioned, the patient organization for this rare blindness, it was Irene Malmany that I went to and said, can you help me gather researchers? And she, to this day, works right by my side. And we actually just had a, a global summit two weeks ago with families from 10 countries and the top researchers in the world talking to those families. So she's been an incredible ally through this whole journey. Wow, that is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Now, did did you actually then uh, have your kids enrolled in like a preschool or were you just playing with the kids and teaching them what you thought they need to learn at home from, from your background? So that's such a great question because in Chicago, um, they, you know, they had early intervention while I was there. Uh, it fell apart. And that was the biggest reason that I moved back home. One of the biggest reasons I moved back home to Philly when Michael was uh, going to go into kindergarten, but they had early intervention. The problem was, you know, Michael's an, is, and Mitchell are LCA kids and LCA, like many of the inherited retinal diseases has a spectrum. And Michael at the time had what they kept telling me, all the therapists were saying, he has so much vision, you're so lucky. Well, what I found out later was Michael had so much vision compared to their other cases. 
not compare to a sighted child. So I made the mistake of, you know, I was cheering. Plus, I was still not in acceptance of this, too. So it's not all their fault. A lot of it was on me and my mindset. And I was cheering when I heard, oh, don't teach him Braille. He'll fight it because he sees too much. And I was cheering when they said, when I asked about a white cane and they said, oh, he's too little. He'll hold your hand and that's how you'll guide him. We'll talk about that in a few years. Like, I was cheering for for any um, residual hope of the life I had planned, right? So, which was the biggest barrier to Michael thriving. Um, But you know what? He was thriving anyway. I do give myself a little bit of a break there. He was, and if you've seen my TED talk, you know that um, I came to the realization at three years old that I had to snap out of this because Michael wasn't devastated. (laughs) He wasn't even... He wasn't even remotely bothered by blindness. It was a, it still is to this day, 20 years later, a mere inconvenience at times for him. And I had to get my head around that and stop it with my hanging on to the sighted life and embrace the fact that my son was just going to do things different. Now, did you attend any other types of uh, counseling you and your, were you married at that time or? I, yeah, I was married at the time. Um, no, my former husband was not a fan of counseling. Um, so unfortunately, I guess I used the early intervention folks more as my counselors to help me through as opposed to getting Michael the tools and resources he really needed, which, you know, I guess you could look back on my journey and maybe that was a good thing because Michael was really doing okay um, and I needed some help. And my family was all here. We didn't have family out there. Um, So, you know, you get through the way you need to get through. And then actually, I was just remembering the rest of your former question. Um, We actually, we were so blessed to live in a town um, out in the Chicagoland area that is rated the number one place to raise a child all the time. And the school district, get this. So the school district out there hosted a preschool that was like, to die for to get into and people would it was this lottery system it was the most incredible school but they had 10 what they called community kids which were just regular old public school kids and five slots for every classroom of special needs and having an IEP so Michael got in for free and they they did inclusion from from the age of three, these kids experienced full inclusion with every therapist. It was really a phenomenal chapter of our lives, um, which was so bizarre to me when we came back to Philly and he went to to kindergarten and he had sailed through preschool and suddenly he was crying. The kindergarten was hard and it just turned out that it was a it was a complete collapse in the system of supporting him as a as a blind student. Um, and then that's a whole nother chapter we can get into when you're ready to get into that about how I had to learn, really learn what a program should look like. Hey, Jesse, you have a question? Well, I don't know where Jesse is. Where's my co-host? <laughs> hear me? Oh, oh, we can hear you now. I just Oh, I'm I so sorry. Order. I got... I heard a little thing that says, you're muted. I was like, oh, that's probably not for me. And it turns out it was. I'm just talking to myself. (laughs) (laughs) 
Jesse, do you? Oh, no, I was really impressed with them. What you were saying about this school system, like, oh my goodness, the fact that they can get all that stuff at such a young age is absolutely amazing. Oh, and I really res- I really resonated with what you said about um, how your son, even all these years later, just views his blindness as like a minor inconvenience because him being, you know, diagnosed at such a young age, it's really all he knew. So the, I'm just thinking a lot of the learning and a lot of the growth and acceptance really had to come on your end, you know? So I really, I just really applaud him and honestly really, really applaud you um, because yeah. it can be very scary. I know my parents felt very scared when I was diagnosed with um, retinitis pigmentosa and it was a very challenging journey for them. But I mean, like you said, you really turned it into something great and I really, I really applaud you for that. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, but I, I do have to acknowledge the fact that um, I, I learned a long time ago to just raise your hand and ask for help, and I knew that this was not going to be a good scene. I watched how how brilliant Michael was, and I thought that coming and handpicking the best school district in the state would be a good thing for him. But they just had no they had no desire, they had no knowledge, they you know they just were not happy about having an educated blind child. So luckily for me in, in Philly, I don't know if you've ever heard of St. Lucie's Day School for the Blind in Philadelphia, but they're in my backyard. And I went and talked to the principal and, and God love her, she, um, Sister Meg sat with me every year. I would come in and for the first couple of years cry because I was so frustrated. And she told me that the tears get you nowhere. You gotta, you gotta keep muscling up. But I built the program at St. Lucie's. I built that in our school districts here in my hometown. Um, all the things, and I would look a year ahead and two years ahead and what technology were they using and how much time did they learn Braille? And I built a program that's unheard of to this day, which I wish, I, I don't wish, I, my goal is to make it the norm across this country that, I mean, my boys went into school an hour before any other child got into the building and worked with one-on-one with their own Braille teachers. So they never were pulled out of a classroom to learn Braille. I mean, those kinds of things I put together to make it the priority and, um, and did a heck of a lot of, I mean, I always joke that I became the most fun PTO mom, the elementary school ever flipping saw because I needed these people <laughs> to love me and not hate me for everything I was asking for. And, um, <laughs> And my boys learned a lot about being grateful and telling people thank you and and letting them know what their support did for them. We would go to school board meetings and my boys would speak to the school board using their electronic brailers and thanking the school board for funding the assistive technology. And they would tell them what they've been able to accomplish, you know, and that brought down a ton of the barriers and and um communication issues and walls we went up against to get the funding. It was phenomenal. You know, that's amazing. Wow. You know, as far as getting that type of funding, was this really a matter of you going to the school board and talking to them or was this actually, you had to go out there and fundraise by speaking to parents and private corporations no, I didn't have to do any of the fundraising. We, um, we just, I would go out and find what the best equipment was for my boys, you know, because in this country, I don't know if every school district is the same, but they do that learning 
uh, it was an LEA, I forget what it stood for, an assessment where they bring in, you know, try out technology, what works through a six week thing, and then try the next one. And it would take months where they had to trial all these things and then recommend what they should use, then put a purchase order in. I'm like, this is, this is like snail's pace. These kids are, it's schools passing them by. So, so what does a mom that has no patience do? I called all the companies, all their vendors, you know, and I brought them to my kitchen table <laughs> and I had my own little test center a couple times a year and said, okay, we need to look at, you know, when Michael was using a CCTV, brought in a ton of CCTVs. We looked at all of the electronic brailers. We just brought them all in. And then I said, here we go. Here's the checklist. Here's the one that works the best. And I guess they were a little bit afraid of me. I don't know, but they said, okay, you know, and they made it work. So I didn't have to fundraise. The school did that. But what we did do was we, we were, um, cheerleaders of our school. We were grateful to our school board for all that they did for not just us, but for other programs in the district. So that anytime a purchase order came across their desk with a Smedley kid name on it, that they would think with a smile, we need to keep that kid moving forward. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, did, did both of your boys continue in public school all the way through graduating from high school? Yeah, Michael. Michael's in college. Mitchell, he's going into senior year in our public high school. And there's, I mean, we're Michael's graduating class had 600 kids in it. Woo, that's a big yeah, class. Big schools. Yeah. And where is Michael going to college right now? He now is at Penn State. And <laughs> um, he started. This is this is my life. Get, get this. So you know, we, we go through the biggest elementary school you could possibly imagine. So mom in, in kindergarten has a heart attack over this kid in this big school. He nails it, no problem. He ended up the tour guide by second grade. He was the tour guide because all these new kids would come in and nobody knew where anything was, and he knew where every nook and cranny of that school was. So then we get to the the middle school was kind of small and crazy. It had all these nooks and crannies. He would tell everybody, both boys, they knew they knew all the the janitors. They knew all the secret spaces. They loved it because they were always doing mobility lessons, right? So then they get yeah. to the high school that's like a junior campus, junior college campus. They were showing kids back staircases, telling freshmen how to get through the crowds. It's hilarious. So Michael. <laughs> goes to not he went to go to nashville to belmont because he researched it it was the number one school in the world for his first major he now has about seven i haven't even kept up with him but <laughs> he goes out to nashville and i'm thinking oh boy that's a that i i measured it like on a map it's a thousand miles from my front door and he we go memorize that campus for four days and had it. I had a temper tantrum on the middle of the campus. He yelled at me about trusting him and he would manage. Oh, well, of course he manages. He memorizes the whole place. He forms a <laughs> band. They, they release an album. I go down to the album release party. It's astronomically amazing. And then he says, you know what, mom, I'm a little bored in Nashville. I'd like to transfer to Penn state. <laughs> <laughs> Who says that, you know? <laughs> As a Penn State, I'm like, Belmont is this beautiful little campus with not that many people, and the buildings aren't that far apart, and then he wants to go to Penn State. There's 30-some thousand kids, and I don't even know the square mileage of that town, you know. But he's loving it. He he figured it out in, in just a few days, and um, now he's moving off campus. And I, I've learned to just go, all right, let me know where I'm dropping your stuff off. <laughs> 
Now, I how, how I much how much pushing did you have to do, or maybe none at all, to get him to go to college? Oh, oh, are you kidding, Michael? I, I said to to his IEP team, and then I went into to Mitchell's IEP team, and I said, everybody, stop with inspiration, motivation, and telling them about the possibilities in this world because I'm tired. There's, they want to do everything. <laughs> Michael is a very, very um, unique, extraordinary type of personality that, that I wish everybody gets to experience somebody like my Michael to watch, especially teachers, to watch a little, uh, well, not little anymore, but this person that came into this world with more self-motivation and more optimism and more love for doing new things than I have ever seen in my life. He just, and I think that was my hardest thing early on with people getting in his way and not getting him the tools and resources that he needed because this kid is ready to leap into new things all the time. And, and that was my biggest frustration. I mean, Mitchell is one, he could not be more different than Michael, but it it took a lot. Yeah, he's so different. He, it took a lot to motivate him. But once Mitch, he's one of those kids that once he's motivated, he's like, he's like a, um, a born an entrepreneur. You know how an entrepreneur just thinks differently and sees issues differently. And he, he leads, he's got a, a, a soul and a heart that is absolutely unbelievable. And he's got this mind that just figures things out so differently than everybody else. It's extraordinary. And once he is hooked into something, there's no stopping him. It was just trying to get him hooked into Braille being a good resource. And once he finally got it, oh my God, we were all so exhausted. It was like, oh my God, he finally gets it. And he's the Braille champion. And then he's been to the Braille challenge a bunch of times in LA. And I'm like, oh, he has. Oh, yeah. Wow. I think Mitch qualified three or four times. Michael was there once. Yeah. The kid that couldn't even stand to hear the word Braille ends up <laughs> on a plane in L.A. I always look at him and shake my head like, how do you land where you land? <laughs> wow, that's amazing that they were here at the Braille Challenge. That's really very, very high level. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. So, so what are some of the success stories, other success stories? I mean, this is enough, but what other success stories can you share with us about uh, your boys or just other students that you have met along the way? Well, I'll tell you, you know, Michael, uh, being I mean, he's three and a half years older than Mitch. He's had a lot more experience and a lot more um, successes just by his age. But I will say, I think... Of all the things that he's done, which are, I mean, like I said, when I was at the album release party in Nashville, I thought my head was going to explode. I was so excited. But of all the things he's done, one of the most proud moments that I actually came home and did like a, I just was so grateful that God blessed me to be this kid's mom. Because when I watched Michael, remember I said that, you know, I had envisioned like, you know, uh, Michael's wedding and, and valedictorian and all that when he was little. Michael became, he didn't know about my dreams for him that I let go of. He was the valedictorian of that class of 600 kids. Oh, and, he was? Yeah. Oh, great. He stood up there, which is, you know, an accomplishment <laughs> in itself because I was, my friends wanted me to, to 
go for valedictorian at my high school. And I was, I was too nervous and didn't have enough courage to, to go for it. And there's Michael. He's just the picture of courage, right? So he gets up there. He had to audition. He, he wouldn't, I am a professional speaker. He would not even tell me the title of his speech. And I'm <laughs> losing my mind, right? And he said his thing is when he was a, per, he's a performer and all, he doesn't like to tell me stuff in advance because he loves to surprise me, which I do love. I love to be in the moment, have no idea what's coming. <laughs> but I wanted to know the title of the speech if he wouldn't tell me. But here's why I was even more proud than just to be able to say that my kid was a valedictorian. He stands on this stage. First of all, he walked with the most confidence and joy to that podium with his cane just so confident, right? And everyone was on the edge of the seat because all 600 kids in that in that auditorium loved my son. And their thousands of family members loved my son and they all know him. And he walked up to the podium. He had his electronic brailler reading his speech, which I tell him all the time he's a cheater as a speaker because he reads his speech and looks people in the eye. He never has to memorize, right? <laughs> he read this most magnificent speech with joy and confidence and all, but here's what he did. He talked all about in his speech about it's important to no one in this world can do everything on their own. And it's important to build a team and find people that can do the things you can't and collaborate with them. And I thought that's the message I've given my kids their whole lives. So I was so proud, right? That he's regurgitating what I taught him. But I always say that Michael always one ups me. And he, he, the second part of his speech was, he said, life is not a one-way street. You need to not only build a team to help yourself, but you have to have your head up and look for other people that need you on their team. And you need to approach them and get on their team and everybody move forward together. And I, that, to oh, me, man. that was one of my most proudest things I've ever seen and heard him do. And I have this picture somebody took of uh with a professional camera they took the moment when michael delivered that line the people behind him in the picture are the school board and the administration that in kindergarten expected him not to achieve any more than 70 percent of the rest of his class oh. and the looks on their faces in the picture are pure pride and joy <laughs> it was the greatest mom moment you could ever have Oh, my goodness. Oh, he is really something. You know, I have just decided if he is willing, we're going to have to have him on Let's Talk Low Vision one night. Oh, we you'll need, love him. We need That's him. so funny, Dr. Bill. I was just saying the same thing. I was like, oh, I would you? love yeah, yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. I made a little note of it. I was like, wow, I wonder. It'd be so interesting to hear, you know, from Kristen's side and then also your son's side that they went through and – Oh my gosh! Yeah. And for, oh, yeah. For for our younger students who are now in middle school, high school, and college, for them to hear from Michael, tell yeah. about how he did this. I have never met any student who is either low vision, or partially sighted, or totally blind, who is a valedictorian in a regular class in a regular school. Oh, Michael's yeah. first I've heard. <laughs> yeah, it was it was um it was such an extraordinary moment. And when I tell you when he was done, the standing ovation and the thundering, screaming <laughs> yeah. and yelling from that class. <clears throat> and here's the thing, you know, if you're if you're a parent and you, you 
we can probably understand when, when that diagnosis was first hit, one of my other first thoughts was, is he going to have any friends? You know, cause I didn't know any blankets. Yeah. I wouldn't know what to do with a blanket and Michael and Mitchell both have touched our entire community. I mean, they were on regular sighted baseball teams and both won championships and were both voted as all-stars because Michael led his team in RBIs and Mitch was the biggest uh, base dealer. I mean, this community has embraced them and they, they've touched everyone here and, and all of those kids and their families cheering for him were, were all people that know him well. You know, and it wasn't even about blindness. It had nothing to do with blindness. It was just who he is as a person. I want to ask a question. I'm not, I got to make certain that I'm understanding this correctly. Both of your boys who both have Lieber's congenital amaurosis were playing baseball, little league baseball. Yeah, because I th at first I thought something is wrong God. with my child. At nine years old, he wanted to go play. They were in blind sports. I mean, we traveled 45 minutes into the heart of the city to play blind sports. Here's the thing. They were in the public school, and Michael did not, neither of them saw blindness as a limitation, so they never saw or thought that that would be weird, you know? Oh, yeah, and Michael yeah, came right. And he's like, I lo he loved the blind sports program, but... He's in the public school. He's sitting there at lunch with all of his friends. They're all screaming at each other about who cheated at the baseball game the day before, you know, <laughs> which um suck. And, you know, it has nine-year-old kids are. And Michael wanted into that part of the social world that he wasn't in. He didn't want to be going to, to some league that no one ever heard of. So, you know, I walked into the, the baseball registration and I actually um, – I have this written as a, I wrote the movie treatment and some scenes and there's some people in Hollywood that are shopping this around to be a movie. Oh, because, really? Yeah. Cause it's a story that needs to be told. Um, yes. That is fantastic. It's absolutely unbelievable to walk into the baseball registration in my town. I have, I've said that, um, you know, Disney has it all wrong. The magic kingdom is not the most magical place on earth. Baseball registration day in Northampton Township, Pennsylvania, <laughs> is the most magical place on earth. Because those people were like, they were like kids at Christmas, all the adults so excited. And I thought, oh, my God, here I walk oh. into the kid with a cane, right? Gosh. Hey, well, Kristen, let me ask you something, and, and then I'm, I'm going to turn it over to Jesse because I know that I'm hogging the microphone. But <laughs> is there anything that we can do to help you in promoting the treatment? to be have it made into a movie um well the biggest thing right now is to get the investors the last i was talking to my producer they have i believe that they've raised half of what they would need because I, I said to them i don't want to be filmed this is a major motion picture you know um and i really i'm my biggest dream is to get this to the folks at disney because it's a it's a it's a Disney type of story that should be out there. A, hero, a true hero's journey that I think Disney should be telling, um, you know, not just their okay, so, all of that. Kristen, if some of our listeners, and again, there's so many people who listen to these um, podcasts, these interviews, just on the Internet. Uh, mm -hmm. If some of them or the people who are on the call right now would like to make a donation, how do we do that? What do we do? Who do we make the check to? Where do we send it? 
Um, you know, I'd have to figure that one out because, I, like I said, I have a producer that is doing that, but they could certainly um, email me and I could figure out how to direct that or I can get that to you by the time that this, um, when does this air? Soon? Uh, I would have to ask uh, our engineer. Uh, okay. Maybe it might be up in a week, but why don't we do this then? If um, you would be able to give us, if you're comfortable with it, give us your email address. And for those of us who maybe want to send you a check, we could send you a check. Or yeah. you could give us the, the person uh, who's producing it, their their address, and we could send a check there. Yeah, that I, I I would love to make a donation. Oh, I appreciate that. And and honestly, if any of your listeners have a connection to um, Disney or another big movie production company, and it, the biggest thing would be an A-list celebrity. That's what my producer said last time. If we can get an A-list celebrity that wants to get involved, that's when you know the money always finds that A-lister or follows the A-lister. But well, um, you know, my son is a filmmaker for Hallmark, but I don't know if Hallmark fits into the category of this type of a story. Yeah, but there may be a connection that he has okay. with somebody. We will that talk would be about, amazing. You know, we'll talk about this later. Mm -hmm. And um, before before I open up to questions, I mean, gosh, I knew this can happen. We're running out of time. But uh, can you give us the name of your book and where's the best place for us to purchase your book? Yeah, it's called Thriving Blind, uh, Stories of Real People Succeeding Without Sight. And the best place is Amazon. It was actually a bestseller when it was released last year. Number one new release. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, yeah. Now, now I'd like to also ask, for some of us who are blind, totally blind, is it available in audio format, like through Audible or uh, another another format? The book is on Bard and um, Bookshare. It's in a lot of, of accessible places. It's coming out on Audible at the end of the summer, and um, honestly, that was intentional to be behind the print and we do have electronic braille that's available through my website at kristensmedley.com um and actually okay more slowly again what is your website kristensmedley.com so it's k-r-i-s-t-i-n-s-m-e-d-l-e-y.com perfect kristen smith you know that name sounds like an actress name actually huh <laughs> hey, your your lips to God's ears, right? There's there's the next there's the next page in Kristen Smedley's journey. Wouldn't that be a hoot? <laughs> hey Jesse, uh, I want to turn it over to you. Do you have any questions? And if you don't, if you could uh, open it up to our audience for questions. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, actually, my the one question I had written down that you didn't already answer was the title of your book. I actually just looked it up on Amazon and just bought it, so I'm very, very excited. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> Read it. I can't okay. wait. Um, um, but yeah, I would actually love to be able to get um, to open this up and to get a few more questions for you. Um, so yeah, we can definitely do that now. I'm not sure how that works with the audio, Doctor Bill. Or okay, yeah. So if any of you in the audience have a question. Uh, you could go ahead and raise your hand by pressing the keystrokes. 
I forgot what they were. Maybe if Robert could uh, <laughs> chime in there. And if you're on a telephone, it is star six to unmute your phone. And if you're on a computer, how do we unmute the computer? Alt-Y, Dr. Bill, to on the computer, PC. Alt-Y? Uh-huh. Great. And if they want to raise their hand, because they have a on question. The, it's star nine if they call on the regular phone. Star nine on your phone and on the computer? On the I computer, Alt-Y. I unmuted you, uh, 307-0318. Yes, uh, my name is Pat, and I live in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, I was born in 1959 with toxoplasmosis. Uh, and back then, they didn't know much about my eye disease. And so my parents were just shocked and you know, this was all before mainstreaming and all the internet and everything. And I wound up going to spend six months, when I was six months old, I went and spent six months at National Institute of Health for them to do research um, mm. about my eyes and the toxoplasmosis and stuff. And, you know, to this day, you know, everybody is still having to educate people, especially at the doctor's offices and places like that, because, you know, a lot of people don't know about these eye diseases. And what I wanted to ask was, what, how does the, I never had heard of this eye disease before, and I read the book on Talking Book, and I was curious to know how your son's uh, eye diseases you know, how it affects them. Um, great question, Pat. And um, and you are exactly right that so many of these doctors are still, that's why I do the work I do. They're still telling people, you know, go home, go blind. There's no hope for you. Um, my boys are LCA. We're the CRB1 gene mutation of LCA only affects um, their eyesight. So they don't have any other systemic health issues. Uh, thank goodness for that. And, and interestingly enough, CRB1 is expressed in the brain. They do tend to, as lots of LCA kids are, they do tend to be a higher intelligence, um, which is a nice bonus. I get to tell the parents when they're upset about the diagnosis. I'm like, well, you're in the brightest category. So good luck with that. That's always a challenge with your kids now in school. They have to figure out how to educate them with Braille and put them in the gifted program. They just loved me at my school. But they just have, it's just a, a vision issue for them. Terry? Good evening. Uh, I just finished your book as well. Found it quite interesting. Oh, thank uh, what you. I am, what I am wondering is, uh, especially when the boys were in high school, what was their visual level at that point? Oh, by high school, it was pretty much gone. They had a they had a considerable amount when they were when they were babies and preschool, but um, by high school, so Michael had pretty much nothing. Mitch has a little bit. He's going into senior year. He's got this little. Um, the only way I can explain it is the top right corner of his right eye has this little sliver, almost like a crescent shape. Mm -hmm. Of, Makes sense. Of some decent vision, 
and that's 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 about it but that little crescent shape is good enough you know he can pull his phone up to his eye sometimes and see some things um luckily he does he finally succumbed to voiceover and all of, and jaws and all that so he wasn't straining but he can see a little bit in that peripheral so he for instance when so when they were when they were playing baseball and that was were you using things like beeper balls or no, they did regular, a regular baseball. God help me. I put them out in the outfield because I spent so much money on their braces. I didn't want their teeth getting knocked out, you know? <laughs> they, um, they, uh, and I actually, look, I was such a neurotic first time mom. When Michael played the first year, I made them play in the outfield. They had to play with another guy. This was actually really cool in terms of empathy and learning how to work together because the other guy would feel the ball if it came out there and hand it to my son. And if it was Michael out there, the entire crowd learned to be quiet. And one kid where the ball was to be thrown, that one kid would call his name and my boys could throw it on a dime to that ball. Where that man the ball. It was cool. But one time Michael, and I had like, I mean, I had the, the, I wanted him to wear a helmet in the outfield. He wouldn't do that because that was nerdy, whatever. And then I had this, the catcher's chest protector I wanted him to wear. And he thought that that was stupid. But one time this giant kid came up and clocked a ball right past Michael and the other kid. It was hit so hard. And Michael came running and grabbed that chest protector. <laughs> he was like, good idea, mom. That's a big kid. <laughs> Kids have to learn on their own. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's great. <laughs> Let's see. Do we have another caller out there, Robert? I don't see any other hands raised yet. Okay, Robert, do you have any questions for Kristen? How does her sister get along with them? Uh, you know, I'm so glad that you asked that because – you know, I've got two blind kids, right? And it's a lot to talk about. And it's very big news all the time. And then I've got my daughter and people say, what? You have a daughter too? They're always talking about the boys. She's extraordinary. I mean, she's only 13 months behind Mitch. I would never recommend that people have kids 13 months apart. It is, it is crazy, Bill. But, um, you know, Carissa, if you've seen my TED Talk, I talk about her at the end. She does not want any spotlight on her unless she's on a sports field or court, then you better have ESPN there covering her. She's very shy about stuff, but Carissa is a very unique, um, extraordinary soul that, that I've had every single teacher, coach, parent, every adult that has met her says they have never seen anything like her because she was born into a family where, you know, we had, I always say that she um, walked the bridges that I spelt, spent years building for her and her brothers. And she does not see, she does not, like when she sees a wheelchair where we see boundary, she sees tool. You know, we see hearing aids as maybe a barrier. She sees that as a tool. She has a whole unique perspective on the world because of her brothers. And she... <laughs> She treats them like they are her brothers. So, I mean, she is their best friend sometimes. And then there are times when Mitchell just yaps, 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 yaps at her. And she's guiding him and will suddenly, oh, I'm sorry, walk you right into a wall. <laughs> typical sister. <laughs> That's it good. is very typical sibling stuff here. <laughs> Congratulations, oh. Kristen. Yes, oh, thanks I for that. I think you're a wonderful speaker, and uh, you should be on the Tonight Show. They got to put you on one night. 
<laughs> you should have your own show. <laughs> yes. We're going to get you a show for Airs LA with us, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. Well, Kristen, well. I just really wanted to thank you for sharing your story. I mean, I know that you've been doing it for years now, but it's so important. And like Dr. Bill said, it's so important for young people and young children to have role models such as your sons, you know, who are doing all these wonderful things and not letting themselves be limited by a visual impairment. And I feel very, very inspired by hearing their story and your story. And I just, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing it with us. Yes. If you would, if, if you would, Kristen, please ask your boys if they would like to be on our show and to talk to high school students, college students about you know, what it's like going through low vision and how they have overcome it, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I know that they would, I know that they will say a resounding yes, because, you know, in our family, we understand we are incredibly grateful for the, the blessings that, that have come along for us. It's other people's stories that, that helped us rise, you know, after, after the sucker punch that I did not expect. And my boys know, I mean, they've been raised in gratitude over all the people that have helped us. So it's, it's, it's all of our mission in this house um, to be able to, to continue to share as much as we can and reach as many people. And I'm so grateful that you guys have this platform to share stories and, and encourage people to keep going and to reach out and, and get the help that you need. Well, thank you very, very much. And I want to thank all of you folks for joining in this evening. This podcast, it will be up on the Airs LA website at www.airsla.org, and it will be under the category of Let's Talk Low Vision. So until next month, we hope that you all just have wonderful days, wonderful nights, and that we can all be a little bit more like Michael and Mitchell. Good night, everybody. <laughs>